Hello, and welcome to the seventh podcast of InfoSec Sync, where we keep you in sync with the ever-changing world of information security. I'm your host, Matt Morris. And I'm your host, Nick Thomas. And give us 60 minutes, and we will keep you on top of the latest security news and help you gain CPEs while tuning in. InfoSec Sync is brought to you by the Van Dyke Technology Group. At Van Dyke, their work is focused on the performance and security of information systems of national impact. Optimize performance, maximize security. Experience a Van Dyke difference and visit them on the web at vdtg.com. Also brought to you by VicTech. At VicTech, they pride themselves on teamwork, customer satisfaction, and providing customers with elite engineering and technology solutions. They aim to become an ever more dominant force in every area, product, or service they represent. Visit them on the web at VicTech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net. And now, for the stories of the week, ending October 17th, 2014. So we're going to get into the stories of the week here in a second. However, uh, we want to kind of go over our social media stats with with what they're looking like. So what are you looking like so far, Nick? So as of right now, we have a total of 1,540 downloads and about 3,769 views of people coming to the website. So thanks for checking us out, folks. That's pretty good. So if you want to reach us, we will be at uh, fb.co slash infosexsyncsm for social media. Um, and we are at Infosec Sync on Twitter. Uh, we're also going to be um, releasing some videos as well. Uh, and we'll have some video accounts here in the future. But uh, for right now, our social media accounts are up and live. So please uh, get on there. Give us a like so you can stay updated with the latest security news. Um, and uh, we try to keep it as frequently updated as possible. So let's go ahead and jump into a story. This week, as you guys know, uh, we had Snapchat with a photo hack, and then Dropbox. So after last week's Snapchat photo hack, uh, its cloud storage provider Dropbox turned in the unsavory and security spotlight. So they're now in the spotlight. An anonymous Pastebin user has claimed to have compromised almost 7 million Dropbox account credentials, emails, and passwords, posting the first 400 direct to Pastebin with a call for Bitcoin donations to leap more. This leak has since been followed up with a couple more pastes of around 100 account credentials apiece. However, these follow-up pastes do not appear to be genuine. In an update to a blog post about the attack, Dropbox notes, a subsequent list of username and passwords has been posted online. We've checked and there are not associated with Dropbox accounts. As with the Snapchat hack, Dropbox has pointed the finger of blame for the 400 compromised accounts elsewhere at unrelated third-party services, stressing that its own security has not been compromised. However, unlike Snapchat, it appears services using Dropbox's API were not to blame here. Rather, the culprit looks like password reuse across other web services. In a post on the blog unequivocally entitled Dropbox Wasn't Hacked, Dropbox, one of the Dropbox um, employees wrote, 
Recent news articles claiming that Dropbox was hacked are not true. Your stuff is safe. The username and passwords referenced in these articles were stolen from unrelated services, not Dropbox. Attackers then used those stolen credentials to try to log in sites across the internet, including Dropbox. We have measures in place to direct suspicious login activity, and we've automatically reset passwords when it happens. Attacks like these are one of the reasons why we strongly encourage users not to reuse passwords across services. For an added layer of security, we always recommend enabling two-step verification on your account. In an earlier statement given to the next web, the company also noted that it quote-unquote previously detected these attacks, adding the vast majority of the passwords posted have been expired for some time now. Dropbox has not been hacked. These usernames and passwords were unfortunately stolen from other services and used in an attempt to log directly into Dropbox accounts. We've previously detected these attacks and the vast majority of passwords are expired. So it's unclear which other websites or services is the source of the security breach, but Dropbox's statement confirms the initially posted credentials are, or rather were, genuine login accounts for its service. A bit now reset. So all of them are reset now. Also says that uh, there were no actual accounts that were compromised as a result of the leaked credentials. If it's a case of simple password cross pollution, i.e. web users reusing the same login credentials across multiple services, then Dropbox has claimed that its service at, that the servers have not been hacked does technically stand up. However, the end results, user account compromised, is the same. Requiring users to enable an additional step aimed at safeguarding their accounts from these types of attacks, such as enforcing two-step authentication, would result in a more robust protection from this type of password hack. But obviously, requiring that step would add an additional layer of complexity for its users. Hence, the ongoing tug-of-war between security and convenience. And throw hackers hoping to make a quick buck from Bitcoin donations, and yet there's another strand in play. Dropbox was in the news earlier this week after coming under fire from NSA whistleblower Ed Snowden as quote-unquote hostile to privacy, referring to its ability to access your data itself, which is yet another security consideration when it comes to its web services. Snowden warned web users that Dropbox does not safeguard their privacy because it holds encryption keys and can therefore be forced by government to hand over the personal data they have stored on their servers. He also suggested people get rid of Dropbox and use alternative cloud storage providers that do not hold any encryption keys and therefore cannot read your data. Name checking, he name-checked the rival cloud storage provider Spider Oak. So this was all reported from TechCrunch. Um, how I personally feel about the situation is cross-pollution and usage of passwords across multiple services is definitely something that is a recipe for disaster, right, Nick? Absolutely, and I agree with enforcing two-step authentication. Um, you know, uh, the, the convenience, it, this just shows the convenience that the stars had in the um, Apple iCloud, iCloud. breach. Yep. They had a, a simple password, like the name of their dog or something, and that wasn't hard to figure out. So, therefore, you get that breach of pictures and things like that. And then if you're storing stuff on Dropbox, well, that stuff is important to you. That's that's your stuff in the cloud, just like iCloud. You should have two-factor uh, authentication. Absolutely, and also, um, we kind of 
recommended a password manager in our previous um, podcast episode. And I definitely think people should follow up with that, um, whether it be a password manager that's on your cell phone, on the computer, it's, you know, physical password manager, something that can generate the password that, you know, allows you to paste it in the clipboard and gets rid of it for you, I think is ideal. Um, and, you know, there's no there's no resident of it. However, there's always, you know, the possibility that an attacker could install a keylogger, could look at things that are being processed in RAM. So that's not even safe. So really, you know, you just have to create the complex passwords. Don't try to create a password with your dog name and use that in five other services. That's not really going to work out too well for you. However, if you use a password such as nine zero lowercase x uppercase y, that that's a, <laughs> you know, and obviously adding uh, sixteen characters to that, that's going to be random, right? Uh, somebody may even look at that and think it's base sixty four encoded. They may not even think it's a password. Absolutely. Make it look like hex or something. Make it look like hex or or something like or that. Or make a exactly. long phrase that you that you remember or put some pluses in there. You know, the longer it is, the harder it's gonna be able Two to equal be equal signs, something. Yeah. Right. So um again so if, if you do that, you won't have a breach. Or it'll make it very difficult. What you wanna do is a layered defense, right? So we wanna be able to make it hard enough for the attacker to guess and they don't have the services and they don't have all of the associated things on the back end to crack passwords if you're using encryption, right? Or to um, attempt to brute force passwords if you have those protections in place. We want to have multiple layers to this thing. And don't forget to constantly change your passwords like every 30 days or how, however often you feel you need to be protected. Don't keep the same password for years and years and years. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so with Dropbox kind of dropped in the box there, and now we're done with that one. Um, do we have another story here? We do. We have another breach this week. Um, this time it's uh, Let me Kmart. Guess. Kmart. Oh, beat me to it. <laughs> Cash registers at 1,200 Kmart stores were infected with malware that scooped up payment card numbers for over a month. Al-Sadar James, the president and chief member officer at the chain of discount department stores, revealed the breach in a public alert on its website, explaining that the incident occurred on an unspecified day in September. In a statement, Kmart said the security breach was discovered on 9 October and that the malware had been operating since early September. And I quote, on Thursday, 9 October, our IT team detected that our Kmart store payment data system had been breached and immediately launched a full investigation working with a leading IT security firm. The security experts reported that, beginning in early September, the payment data systems at Kmart stores were purposely infected with a new form of malware. This resulted in debit and credit card numbers being compromised." End quote. An initial investigation suggests the cyber thieves stole credit and debit card numbers. So far, it is not clear how many cards and customers have been affected. In its statement, Kmart said no personal information, PIN codes, email addresses, or social security numbers were taken with the card numbers. The malware has now been removed and the breach contained, it said but it was continuing its investigation to gauge its full impact. It added that there was no evidence that any of the card numbers stolen were being used to create counterfeit cards and land victims with bills for items they did not buy. Despite this, Kmart said 
it would be offering free credit monitoring protection for customers to ensure any fraudulent use of their cards did not affect their credit score. The United States Security Service, which leads investigations into financial fraud, is known to be investigating the case. Quote, I sincerely apologize for any inconvenience this may cause our members and customers, said Alistair James, president of Kmart, in the statement. News about the Kmart breach comes soon after the Dairy Queen restaurant chain revealed that some of its outlets across 46 United States were hit by hackers. Malware was used to steal names, card numbers, and expiration dates of payment cards at 395 restaurants. Many large U.S. stores have been hit by attackers that target payment card systems in recent months. The largest attack was against Target in which thieves stole details of 40 million payment cards. Sean Henry, a former FBI officer, who was now head of security firm CrowdStrike Services, said, Retailers needed to do a better job of detecting breaches quickly before large numbers of payment data was stolen. The computer networks of retailers were so large that attackers were more than likely to find a way in, he told Reuters. Quote, this is going to continue indefinitely until people change their practices, said Mr. Henry. I wonder if this is a strain of Black POS or um, Keptoxa. So that was the uh, malware strain that was used in Target um, that was designed to siphon data from cards when they were swiped at infected POS systems, but they were running Microsoft Windows operating systems. Yeah, it seems like this is a, a team that's hitting these these POS. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if it's a country or just hackers trying to make money, uh, but retailers need to recognize this and, and start defending their networks appropriately. That is for sure. So can I segue into the next story? Sure. What's the next story, Matt? Next story is, and uh, many of our Android folks are going to know about this. The oh, so Cyan- I don't need to worry about it then. I know, me neither. I got an iPhone. So the uh, Cyanogen mod. Oh, yeah, I heard about this one. So a security researcher claimed Android Cyanogen mod developers reused vulnerable code that puts millions of users at risk of uh, man-in-the-middle of attacks. If you installed Cyanogen mod on your Android, then your device is purportedly vulnerable to ze- a zero-day blamed on code reuse. At the RuxCon Security Conference in Australia, an unnamed security researcher revealed that Cyanogen mod developers copy-pasted Oracle's sample code for Java 1.5, and that's what puts the Android devices that have the Cyanogen mod at risk of man-in-the-middle attacks. The register reported that the security researcher does not want his name used, but he warned that the Cyanogen mod and a ton of others have reused code that was reported to have SSL vulnerabilities back in 2012. The researcher said, and I quote, If you go and create an SSL certificate for a domain that you own, say evil.com, and in an element of the certificate signing request, such as the organization name field, you put the value such as CN equals asterisk domain name asterisk, it will be accepted as the valid domain name for that particular certificate. CyanogenMod uses this implementation for its browsers, so you can go down and man in the middle someone's phone. Oh, that's cool. There had been over 10 million installs as of December 2013, but that number was derived by users leaving the CyanogenMod stats enabled on their Android uh, phones and tablets. The CyanogenMod stats map certainly is active, 
but there is no current stats number for how many total installs there have been in the last 10 months. Nevertheless, a zero-day vulnerability in the Cyanogen build of Android allegedly puts millions upon millions of users at risk. The newest version, which is CM110M11, was just released last week on October 8th. The Cyanogen mod blog has yet to respond to the zero-day allegations. Although the security researcher responsibly disclosed the flaw to affected vendors, Cyanogen mod did not respond. He then mentioned the zero day that allows men in the middle attacks at RuxCon. He described the fix as fairly simple, adding that the exposure served as an academic exercise in the perils of code reuse. Code reuse is exceedingly common, and some variation of repackaged code generally makes the top 10 list of cybersecurity threat predictions every year. According to the stack, of the 3,000 previously unidentified malware entities and the flood of the network every day, many are old friends repackaged to generate hashes unfamiliar to the databases of Bitdefender, Symantec, and other anti-malware companies, and this guarantees them at least an hour in the wild, if not a whole zero day. But others are genuinely evolutionary, and mimic the behavior patterns of benign software in an attempt to avoid wasting its payload behavior on a sandbox, sandbox or virtualized environment. Giovanni Vigna, CTO of LastLine and director of the Center for Cybersecurity at the University of California, Santa Barbara, spoke about the evolution of evasive malware in IP Expo Europe. This quote-unquote new malware wants to know if it's running in front of a real user and in a real system, and to this end, it's developed an ever-growing map of telltale signs that it might not be in Kansas after all. If you do not analyze malware, then perhaps you are unaware that most sandbox-based anti-malware approaches can be easily bypassed. In fact, there is nothing new in malware wanting out of a specific period or awaiting a certain set of environmental conditions before acting. But this intelligence probing of the host environment is a phenomenon of recent years. If the malware in question cannot be convinced that it isn't a worthwhile attack space, it may never act at all, and may therefore prove difficult to study, categorize, or protect against. Vigna explained that increasingly invasive malware will look for hardware hooks indicating the connection of a keyboard and mouse, and most particularly, it will seek to identify mouse movements as a sign that an actual end user may be sitting in front of malware on a real computer. It'll also check the color of the background, background pixel. Mutex names and the names of the hardware connected to the system and for details of the Windows product ID. So this is huge. So not only are as network defenders are we looking for indicators of compromise, but the malware strains themselves are looking for indicators of them being in a uh, traditional, uh, we'll call it a traditional environment. That's crazy. Um, so That's there's, awesome. there's logic <laughs> built into it. That evasive malware is increasing in quantity and sophistication, as well as the need for novel techniques that can identify evasive behavior. These were all described as key takeaways from Vigna's talk. There are only around 100 cybercriminal kingpins behind global cybercrime, according to Trolls Odering, the head of Europol's Cybercrime Center. Most of what he revealed to BBC 
echoed the 2014 Internet Organized Crime Threat Assessment Report, which we'll post in our show notes. However, he suggested that the increasing trend towards greater encryption of online communication is not acceptable. He added that backdoors for law enforcement might be the answer. Another key for law enforcement is to target the rather limited group of good programmers. That may be true, but wouldn't that mean more cyber criminals would likely repackage and reuse sophisticated and evasive malware code that works well? Absolutely. So, really, it's a double-edged sword. You know, if we identify the talent, bring them in, they make the backdoors and, you know, leverage sophisticated techniques from an offensive standpoint with being able to have the backdoors and things like that integrated into code, you could then use those same techniques to subvert common methods, right? Um, And they'd use it over and over again to do that. Yep. So you'd have code reuse and exploit reuse, which could cripple, right, depending upon the sophistication. So do you have something else for us, maybe something Oracle-like? Sure. This Tuesday... Oracle release fixes for 155 vulnerabilities affecting 44 products, with the most serious bugs to be fixed being 25 that affect Java SE. Oracle has a larger-than-usual lineup of fixes in its quarterly critical patch update set for release on Tuesday, alongside Microsoft's Patch Tuesday and Adobe's fixes for Flash. The flaws can be remotely exploited over a network without requiring user credentials. Oracle will release 25 security fixes for Java SE, which include 22 vulnerabilities that may be remotely exploitable without authentication. Not good. That means I don't need credentials to hit you. Oracle says that components affected in this month's update include Java SE, Java SE Embedded, Java FX, and JRocket. The highest CVSS base score severity rating among the Java fixes is 10, the highest possible. Different versions of Oracle database server products will also get a number of important fixes with 32 lined up for Tuesday and at least one attracting a CVSS base score of 9.0. That's pretty high because that's a scale of 10. According to Oracle, one of the 32 fixes is for a flaw that may be remotely exploitable without authentication, while four Vixens are applicable to client-only installations. Of the 17 fixes on the way for Oracle Fusion middleware products, 13 may also be remotely exploited without authentication. However, the highest CVSS base score for the fixes is only 7.5. Meanwhile, four fixes for Oracle retail applications, which are all remotely exploitable without authentication, have been given the same severity rating. Oracle Sun Systems product suite will also receive 15 fixes, of which 6 are remotely exploitable. The highest severity rating for this product is 7.8. Finally, Oracle MySQL will get at least one fix with a severity rating of 8.0, with 24 fixes due for the product, 9 of which can be remotely exploited without authentication. While Tuesday's update includes more than the above-mentioned fixes, they're for flaws given a CVSS base score of no more than 5.0. So Matt, with that, what other patches do we have coming out? Well, funny you should mention that. So we have Microsoft Patch Tuesday. So Microsoft issued eight security bulletins on Tuesday that addressed two dozen 
vulnerabilities, including a bug reportedly being exploited by Russian hackers to target NATO computers. Issued as part of its October edition of Patch Tuesday, the updates address vulnerabilities found in all current supported versions of Windows, i.e. Office, and the .NET framework. Three of the bulletins are rated critical, meaning Microsoft recommends systems administrators to apply the patches like not yesterday, not tomorrow, but right now, immediately. Security researcher FireEye said it identified two of three so-called zero-day bug fixes, which are flaws that are being actively exploited in the wild by hackers, being used as part of a quote-unquote limited targeted attacks against some major corporations. One of the patches addresses a RCE flaw, remote code execution flaw, in all supported versions of Microsoft Windows, Windows Server 2008, and 2012. And this is currently being exploited in the Sandworm cyber attack. The exploit has been used as part of the five-year cyber espionage campaign according to Security Eyesight, but it is unknown to what kind of data has been lifted throughout the Sandworm campaign. EyeSight said that a team of hackers previously launched campaigns targeting the U.S. and EU intelligence communities, military establishments, news organizations, and defense contractors, as well as jihadists and rebels in Chechnya. However, focus had turned towards the Ukrainian conflict with Russia, energy industries, and political issues concerning Russia based on evidence gleaned from phishing emails. Microsoft rated the flaw as important rather than critical because it requires a user to open a Microsoft Office file to initiate the code execution, thus being part of a chained phishing attack. Quote, unquote, a vulnerability exists in Windows OLE that could allow remote code execution of a user open a file that contains a specifically crafted OLE object, Microsoft warned in its bulletin, and I quote, an attacker who successfully exploited this vulnerability could gain the same user rights as the logged-on user. An OLE is Microsoft technology for creating complex documents that contain a combination of text, sound, video, and other elements, kind of like RTF. Another zero-day flaw addressed by the update is a privileged escalation vulnerability that could lead to full access to the effective system, Microsoft said in the bulletin. And a third zero-day bug in Windows rated as critical and patched Tuesday could allow remote code execution when a victim visits and opens a document or visits a malicious website that contains embedded TrueType fonts. So, you know, these are zero-day vulnerabilities in CVE 2014-4414. So with that, I'm going to kind of go into some of the vulnerabilities, the zero days that were discovered by EyeSight, among some other um, individuals within the industry or uh, enterprises and companies within the industry. So with EyeSight discovering that zero-day vulnerability, which is coined as CVE 2014-4414, that was used in the Russian cyber espionage campaign, that was a zero-day impacting all versions of Microsoft Windows, which was used in a Russian cyber espionage campaign that was targeting NATO, EU, telecommunications, and energy sectors. On Tuesday, October 14, 2014, EyeSight Partners, in close collaboration with Microsoft, announced the discovery of a zero-day vulnerability impacting all supported versions of Microsoft Windows, Windows Server 2008, and 2012. Microsoft is making the patch for this vulnerability available as part of its patch updates on the 14th, which was what um, this past um, 
patching segment. So this was yesterday. We're recording on Wednesday, so it was on Tuesday. Exploitation of this vulnerability was discovered in the wild, and it was a direct connection um, in that campaign that iSight partners attribute directly to Russia. So the visible targets. Visibility into this campaign indicates targeting across the following domains. It is critical to note that the visibility is limited and that there is a potential for a broader targeting from this group and potentially other threat actors using this zero day. And all of this information is derived from a report that we're going to post on our show notes if you want to find out further information. So then uh, NATO, Ukrainian government and organizations, Western European government and organizations, sector firms, specifically in Poland, and European telecommunication firms. U.S. academic organizations were also targeted. So let's look at high level on Sandworm. That was a cyber espionage campaign that was also attributed to Russia. So as part of iSight's normal cyber threat intelligence ops, iSight partners are tracking a growing drumbeat of cyber espionage activity out of Russia. They are actively monitoring multiple intrusion teams with different missions, targets, and attack capabilities. They are tracking active campaigns by at least five distinct intrusion teams. For example, they recently disclosed the activities of one of those teams, which, what was the name of that team? It's called the Czar Team, T-S-A-R. Okay, and that was surrounding the use of mobile malware. Right. This team has previously launched campaigns targeting the United States, European intelligence communities, militaries, defense contractors, news organizations, NGOs, and multilateral organizations. It has also targeted jihadists and rebels in Chechnya. So we are attributing this particular cyber espionage campaign to a different intrusion team that iSight has has dubbed the Sandworm Team, which was based on its use of encoded references to the classic science science fiction series Dune and command and control URLs and various malware samples. Do you have anything further on that for us? Um, the team has been previously referred to as Kidash, Kidash by F-Secure, which detailed elements of this campaign in September, but only captured a small component of the activities and failed to detail the use of the zero-day vulnerability. EyeSight partners have been monitoring the Sandworm team's activities from late 2013 and throughout 2014. The genesis of this team appears to be around 2009. The team prefers the use of spear phishing with malicious document attachments to target victims. Many of the lures observed have been specific to the Ukrainian conflict with Russia and to broader geopolitical issues related to Russia. The team has recently used multiple exploit methods to trap its targets, including the use of black energy crimeware, exploitation of as many as two known vulnerabilities simultaneously, and this newly observed Microsoft Windows Zero Day. So let's go ahead and look at some of the chronological details that are surrounding the Sandworm targeting. The NATO alliance was targeted as early as December 2013 with exploits other than the zero day. Global sec attendees were targeted in the May of 2014 with exploits other than the zero day. And in June 2014, broad targeting against specific Western governments, targeting of Polish energy firms using CVE 2013-3906, and targeting of a French telecommunications firm using the black energy variant configured with a base 64 encoded references to the firm. In late August, while tracking the Sandworm team, iSight discovered a spear phishing campaign that targeted the Ukrainian government and at least one United States organization, notably 
these spear phishing attacks coincided with the NATO summit in Ukraine that was held in Wales. On September 3rd, our research and labs team discovered, and this is under the eyesight, um, the eyesight coverage, on September 23rd, our research labs and teams discovered that the spear phishing attacks relied on the exploitation of zero-day vulnerabilities impacting all supported versions of Microsoft Windows. XP was not impacted, but um, Server 2008 and 2012 um, were also affected. A weaponized PowerPoint document was observed in these attacks. So it's badguy.powerpoint. As an example, of course, they could rename it to whatever they want. So, though iSight has not observed details on what data was exfilled in this campaign, the use of this zero-day vulnerability virtually guarantees that all of those entities that were targeted fell victim to some degree. iSight immediately notified targeted entities, and clients across multiple governments and private sector domains began working with Microsoft to track this campaign and develop a patch to the zero-day vulnerability. Working with Microsoft, they discovered the following. An exposed dangerous method vulnerability exists in the OLE package manager and Microsoft Windows and server. It affects all versions of the Windows operating systems from Vista SP2 to Windows 8.1. So Service Pack 2 and Vista is affected onwards. It impacts Windows Server versions from 2008 and 2012. When exploited, the vulnerability allows an attacker to remotely execute arbitrary code, so remote code execution. The vulnerability exists because Windows allows the OLE manager or the OLE packager, which is packager.dll, to download and execute INF files. In the case of the Azure exploit, specifically when handling Microsoft PowerPoint files, the packages allows the packaged OLE object to reference arbitrary external files such as INF files from untrusted sources and entities. This will cause the reference file to be downloaded, in the case of the INF file, to be executed with specific commands. An attacker can exploit this vulnerability to execute arbitrary code but will need significantly crafted files and use of social engineering methods that were observed in the campaign to convince a user to open it. So was there some coordinated disclosure? Do we have some type of transparency or translucency, as we like to call it, um, surrounding this particular attack? So over the past five weeks, iSight partners worked closely with Microsoft to track and monitor the exploitation of the vulnerability in the wild, share technical information to assist in the analysis of the vulnerability, and the development of a patch and coordinate disclosure to the broader security community. Although the vulnerability impacts all versions of Microsoft Windows, having the potential to impact an enormous user population, from iSight's tracking, it appears that its existence was little known and the exploitation was reserved to the Sandworm team. Given that affected parties were notified and that iSight did not witness a major surge, broader propagation of the exploit based upon their visibility into the team's command and control infrastructure iSight elected to time the disclosure to the availability of a patch. This timing minimizes the potential for other bad actors to take advantage of the vulnerability. Should iSight have witnessed a major change, both Microsoft and iSight partners were ready to release this information in advance of the patch. The application of this patch should be done as soon as humanly possible given the potential for further exploitation by this cyber espionage team and others in the threat actor community. 
Microsoft is detailing a list of workarounds to the vulnerability as part of its bulletin. These workarounds should help mitigate the risk of exploitation while the patching process unfolds for your firm. So we will post information that is relevant to this particular disclosure of the zero-day vulnerability that is affecting the Microsoft suite of applications on our website. So be sure to check that out, www.infosecsync.com. So with that, um, let's go ahead and, and shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about uh, the Obama administration, but it's not healthcare.gov. We're going to talk about uh, how it's shifting its strategy to get Congress to enact meaningful cybersecurity reform. Ooh, do tell, Matt. Do tell. So, speaking at a forum October 9th, sponsored by the Christian Science Monitor, White House Cybersecurity Coordinator Mike Daniel says the administration will abandon its efforts to seek a passage of comprehensive cybersecurity measure in favor of a smaller, more tailored bill or set of bills. And I quote, I do think it will probably be easier for us to get a smaller pieces of cyber legislation rather than one giant comprehensive bill, says Daniel, a special assistant to the president. And I quote, so... A lot of our efforts are involved in getting whatever we can passed on whatever vehicle we can manage to get it attached to, as long as the policy and the legislation itself is acceptable. So, I think that's one thing I would say we're trying to be different in a way of going about doing things. And end quote. Daniel at the forum also addressed White House reaction to the recent bank breaches and law enforcement concerns over the hard-to-crack encryption with the new Apple iPhones. Working with the Democratic-controlled Senate, the administration over the past few Congresses has backed comprehensive cybersecurity legislation that has never come up for a floor vote. However, the Republican-led House of Representatives has passed a series of cybersecurity bills with bipartisan support including measures to encourage cyber threat information sharing between the government and businesses and reforming the Federal Information Security Management Act, FISMA, the law that governs federal government IT security. So lawmaking is a challenge, right? Daniel says, The White House is committed to getting cybersecurity legislation enacted before the current Congress adjourns at the end of the year. And I quote, but obviously, getting anything passed on Capitol Hill right now is quite a challenge. Absolutely true. And I quote, We try to be realistic, but it's something that we still remain heavily engaged in. End quote. The Senate has not scheduled any votes on cybersecurity legislation, and many people who track cybersecurity legislation have expressed doubts that Congress will act this year. We'll post uh, the expectations... Um, for different laws for cyber legislation on our show notes. And uh, it is unclear whether compromise can be reached between the White House and the House over several key pieces of cybersecurity legislation. The administration has threatened a presidential veto of the House-passed Cyber Threat Information Sharing Bill, the Cyber Intelligence Sharing and Protection Act, because it believes the measure provides insufficient privacy safeguards and furnishes too broad liability protections to businesses that share cyber threat data. So, regarding FISMA reform, the White House has backed legislation to give the Department of Homeland Security sway over civilian IT, um, you know, IT agencies' security activities 
provisions the House bill lacks. So that the House bill itself does lack these things, so they're trying to fill those deficiencies. So let's segue into monitoring the J.P. Morgan Chase breach. He also spoke on that. Nick, do you have some things for that? During the forum, Daniel was asked, but didn't provide much additional insight, about a report that the White House had been closely following suspected attacks on banks since the summer, as tensions between the U.S. and Russia continue to rise. The report also says President Obama and his top national security advisors have been asking about the motive behind the attack on J.P. Morgan Chase. Daniel says he couldn't provide details because of a continuing investigation by the FBI and Secret Service. Quote, Part of our job on the National Security Council is to make sure the president What's and his up, senior advisor... guys? Oh, no, not Vic. <laughs> you guys are looking at me like I'm a steak dinner here. I didn't bring any food tonight. That's got, why we're looking at you like that. We got Doritos, Coke, Snickers and water. bars. About to fire up the popcorn. Man, I'm hungry. I wish we had some food tonight. But, uh, hey, man, what's up with the shirts? Those are sharp-looking shirts you got on. Yeah, we uh, just ordered our new InfoSec Sync shirts. We'll be sure to post a picture up on the blog for you guys to check it out. But, yeah, we have our uh, we like supporting local business here. So, as you guys know, we're out of Baltimore, Maryland. Um, in the house, so uh, Under Armour is actually a local company. Under Armour. So it is a Under Armour um, polo. Looks pretty cool. We have the InfoSec Sync. Must protect this house. We must protect this house. Definitely. So uh, yeah, absolutely. So sorry to interrupt what you were saying there, Nick. So uh, what's the dealio? May I continue? Absolutely. Wait a minute. Do oh. I get a shirt? Where's my shirt? Your shirt's in the mail. Oh man! <laughs> Don't worry, I brought I brought one for Vic here, so um, we'll be sure to throw that at him um, and uh, oh, thanks. square that man, away. This, this is sharp looking. It's gr- it's great, isn't it? Yep, it's it looks great. good. Awesome. I'm gonna have to try it on. Okay, so back to where I was talking about. Daniel says he couldn't provide details because of a continuing investigation by the FBI and Secret Service. He says, "quote." Part of our job on the National Security Council is to make sure the president and his senior advisors remain informed about a wide array of national security threats that confront the country, end quote. That was the context we were treating this particular issue. It is something that we pay attention to in the sense that we are mindful of all the threats to our critical infrastructure, whether you're talking about the financial sector, the electric sector, the telecom sector, so put into that broader context, anytime we see specific targeting or successful penetrations of those kinds of companies, it's something we're going to engage on, he said. But there's actually some policy tension. So, Matt, what's going on with the policy tension? So there is a policy tension out there, and that's on encryption. So responding to a question... Daniel sympathized with objections raised by the Attorney General Eric Holder and the FBI Director James Comey that Apple's new iPhone and forthcoming Android mobile phones have data encryption so sophisticated that law enforcement with search warrants would not have access to the data. But the cybersecurity coordinator also noted that the advantage of, of these and need for industry to create stronger encryption. So we'll kind of post something up there with Apple iOS 8 and um, rebooting the uh, privacy and security settings. So something a little bit new out there. So when I quote, 
it's not so much an encryption itself. It's how the government and our law enforcement agencies can continue to access information in the course of an investigation and a court approved process in a way that does not put something completely beyond the reach of law enforcement. He says, even things that are in safes and other places are reachable by search warrant. In many cases, and so we don't want to have something that puts it utterly beyond the reach of law enforcement's and in appropriate circumstances, they can access those types of data. So I quote, on the other hand, I think clearly we need to improve the use of encryption and how we employ it. And in many cases, that would be very beneficial to protecting our intellectual property. This is a very hard area. They've had debates about encryption going back decades, but probably as long as there's been encryption. However, uh, this is going to continue to be a policy tension that they're going to have to try to navigate. And people don't like um, law or law enforcement looking in their data. They don't. So I mean, they're going to fight that as well. Yeah, so like, just imagine a TSA stateside here taking in a system or taking in a device and taking a forensic copy of the hard drive with a search warrant. You know, if it's an encrypted uh, file system, if it's uh, an encrypted device, they're not going to be able to pull anything you know, of value from that device. And what's funny is they're they're telling the manufacturers that you know you're too sophisticated. Bring it down a notch so we can we can see we can get facts from it. That you know that's kind of funny. So what I think that is is basically um, the manufacturers are trying to make things more secure. However, and that's to answer like the iCloud breach and the certain things that are occurring. However, in the same breath, um, enforcement. Uh, intelligence community officials and things like that are trying to ensure that they can have maintained, sustained access to these things through the official court approved processes and things like that while observing, you know, uh, an expectation of privacy per se. So, Matt, I was looking um, uh, as we look at the web every day uh, for these stories, I found something really interesting about banking and voice recognition. Do tell. So, uh, banks to introduce voice recognition technology in the fight against fraud. The existing measures put in place by the banks to combat fraud are relatively good. Secure online payment systems, passwords, pins, chip authentication programs, and other measures are used by banks to help protect your money. Yet, someone merely needs access to your details to break into your account. This would be made much more difficult by the introduction of voice recognition technology. It would, after all, be rather difficult to mimic somebody's voice. Voice biometrics works by taking a voice print, voice print is also called a spectrogram, to identify an individual. Each person's spectrogram is unique and even more distinguished than fingerprints. The characteristics of your speech are compared to existing data on a company's system as a means of secure identification. Research carried out by Raphael Satter for the Associated Press established that some companies and governments have already been putting this technology into practice, but without communicating the process to clients. According to voice biometric vendor Paul Bermsetter, the technology isn't just something that can be used by intelligence services and the like. And analysts estimate that the industry's revenue will have doubled by next year. Barclays Bank has already trialed this software with some of its wealthier clients, and the results proved very successful. 
Thus, the bank intends to extend the use of voice recognition technology to its entire client base. Companies in various countries have been implementing their own versions of the tech, but the largest program was implemented by Turkish mobile phone company Turkcell, which sourced the biometric data from 10 million customers. 10 million. The technology has also been used around the world in the following capacities. Tracking criminals, monitoring people claiming pensions, replacing passwords, accessing accounts, and more. It seems, therefore, that voice recognition technology will become widely used in the next few years. So very interesting So it's not just what you know, who you are, and what you are, but it's how you sound. What you sound like. Absolutely. I'd like to sound like uh, Ludacris. I'd love to have his voice. Yeah. Or the guy from the Allstate commercial. Luda. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, we're going to take a little bit of a break, come back, get into the tech segment. We have some exciting stuff uh, to talk about, and then we will finish the show, and number seven will be in the book. So stick around, guys. We will talk to you here in a minute. And we're back. We're back, everyone. From the break. And uh, sad news here. Vic has to leave us, and he hasn't even had any segments or anything this time, so he's going to have to make it up next time. Well, you know what? During the break, I went in and tried on the new shirt. It fits like a glove. Awesome. So awesome. I lo- love the shirt. Thanks, guys. Uh, yeah, I got to roll out. My um, uh, sister-in-law and brother-in-law are watching my little girl, so I'm sure uh, gotta get home. Katie and Dennis want to get home here soon. So uh, Family first, security second. Yeah, they're uh, how we roll. great family to have. So uh, you guys have a good night, and uh, keep on keeping on like uh, Joe Dirt said. Absolutely. Keep on keeping on, guys. All right, Vic. We'll see you later, man. Good All deal, right. man. It was uh, good having you come through. Likewise. Love it. Love it. Next time, I'll bring some food. All right, guys, so we have uh, two good stories, and, um, you know, we scour the net every week to look for uh, security articles and what's going on in the industry, and we haven't had time to get to these two stories um, until uh, tonight, so um, the first one is really cool. It's about a hacker exploiting uh, the printer web interface to install and run Doom. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, isn't that really cool? (laughs) On Friday, September 12th, the hacker presenting at the 44Con Information Security Conference in London picked at the vulnerability of web accessible devices and demonstrated how to run unsigned code on a Canon printer via its default web interface. After describing the device's encryption as doomed, Context Information Security Consultant Michael Jordan, yes, Michael Jordan, J-O-R-D-O-N though, made his point by installing and running the first-person shooting classic Doom on a stock Canon PIXMA model number MG6450. Sure enough, the printer's tiny menu screen can render a choppy and discolored but playable version of id Software's 93 hit, the result of Jordan discovering that PIXMA printers' web interfaces didn't require any authentication to access. Quote, you could print out hundreds of test pages and use up all the ink and paper. So what? Jordan wrote at Context blog report about the discovery. But after a little more sniffing, he found that the devices could also easily be redirected to accept any code as legitimate firmware. A vulnerable PIXMA printer's web interface allows users to change the web proxy settings and the DNS server. From there, 
an enterprising hacker can crack the device's encryption in eight steps, the final of which includes unsigned plain text firmware files. The hacking possibilities go far beyond enabling choppy early 90s gaming. Quote, we can therefore create our own custom firmware and update anyone's printer with a Trojan image which spies on the documents being printed or is used as a gateway into their network, Jordan wrote. It's a solid reminder that the most seemingly innocent devices in a home or work network can become gateways to all matter of exploits, beyond the ones publicly disclosed at hacking conferences. Years ago, for example, a series of HP printers were subject to their own remote remote access hack, though HP denied the researcher's assertion that it could be used to set printers on fire. The Canon exploit, meanwhile, could reach far and wide if affected users don't pay attention to upcoming firmware updates to fix the issue. Shortly before the exploit became public, Contacts scanned the internet for vulnerable Pixma printers whose web interfaces could be accessed. The group was able to log into 6% of them, by that estimate, quote, at least 2,000 vulnerable models are sitting online as we speak, ready to receive doom (laughs) or something scarier. Jordan's post goes into less detail about the version of doom he got running on Pixma printers in an interview with the BBC. He clarified that the printer had a 32-bit ARM processor and 10 meg of memory, but modifying the ARM version of Doom to work required months of his spare time. As a result, he told the BBC he was, quote, so sick of working on the game port and would not further optimize it. Sorry, Sorry printer gamers. <laughs> Context reached out to Canon after discovering the exploit in March of this year, and the companies have been in active conversation since then. Immediately after the presentation, Canon issued a statement indicating that all affected Pixma models in the wild will receive a firmware update to add a login prompt. In the meantime, Context suggests users, quote, not put your wireless printers on the internet, nor any other Internet of Things device. So no thermostats, no printers, no ovens, no (laughs) garage door openers, any of that. Don't put them directly on the the internet. The security company isn't aware of any active exploits aimed at printers. Quote, but hopefully we can increase the security of these types of devices before the bad guys start to. And it's crazy because the enumeration and identification of vulnerable devices on the internet now is so easy. Are I mean, endless. We have Shonen HQ. We have some other methods um, for you to very quickly search and see what's vulnerable without actually hitting these devices yourself. So that's something also to keep in mind. Something I want to get into was uh, how to tr- transform a USB stick into an undetectable malicious device. So recently, two independent researchers, Brandon Wilson and Adam Codhill, have released the code which can reprogram benign USB devices, turning them into malicious components. The experts published the code on GitHub, raising the question related to the real level of security of USB devices. The bad USB research was approached in detail during the Black Hat conference when security experts demonstrated the risks related to an undetectable menace carried by USB. Security explained that USB devices can be used to compromise personal computers and a potential new type of attacks that could not be detected with all security protections in place. 
Karsten Knoll, chief scientist with Merlin's SR Labs, discovered that bad actors could exploit this new class of attacks, loading malicious software, low-cost computer chips that control the functions of the USB devices. The researchers from SR Labs, which presented the attack scheme during the Black Hat conference this summer, point a series of flaws in the software used to run a tiny uh, electronic component, and these components are usually designed without protections against tampering with their, uh, their code. So hackers can uncover such flaws and exploit them, creating serious problems for the targeted architecture. And I quote, you cannot tell where the virus came from. It's almost like a magic trick, end quote, said Noel. Noel explained that his team has written malicious code and deployed it into USB control chips used in thumb drives and smartphones. At this point, it is sufficient that victims connected to the USB device that connected to a computer can trigger the execution of malicious software. Noel and Lull's bad USB demonstration during Black Hat illustrated how their code could overwrite the USB's firmware and turn a USB device into pretty much anything. The flash drive plugged into a PC, for example, can emulate a keyboard and issue commands that steal data from the machine, spoof a network interface, and redirect traffic by altering, uh, altering the DNS settings. Or you could load malware from a hidden partition on the drive. Antivirus software is not able to detect malicious firmware that controls USB devices. The code inserted with this method can be used for many purposes, including spying on communications, data tampering, and uh, keystroke logging. But while Karsten Knoll decided to not disclose the attack code, Brandon Wilson and Autumn Cotto made public their source code to solicit the IT industry to adopt necessary me- measures for securing the USB firmware from the mal- malicious manipulations. So unfortunately, there are no effective defenses from USB attacks at this moment, and antivirus cannot access the firmware, and the behavioral detection is very hard to implement. Those things, man, those things so, are dangerous, and wow. <laughs> yeah, we're definitely going to have to be on the lookout for that. So with that, um, that's actually our last uh, story for tech segment. We will post the details up on the show notes. So we're going to take a break, come back, and finish out the show. All right, guys. All right, and, and that's another one. That's episode seven in the books. So please, if you have any feedback, um, we received some great feedback so far. Give um, us some more. We're at uh, feedback at infosexsync.com. Uh, you know where to find us on social media. Uh, please uh, follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook to get constant updates. Um, we like to keep that updated. And thank you so much for listening and following. And, uh, you know, we owe it all to our listeners. So here's to many more. And um, I will see you guys tomorrow. Everybody that's coming out to the ISD Squared Talk. We will be in Issa, Orlando um, on the 22nd and 23rd of October. And we will be at Cyber Maryland um, in Baltimore on the 29th and 30th. Uh, we're going to B-Sides at the end of this week as well, B-Sides DC. So any of our listeners, please don't come on by. Be, don't be shy. Come on by and, uh, and say hi. So uh, good deal. Uh, talk to you guys next time. See ya.